I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at the first part of Revelation chapter 8 today. So here's the explanation of why we had to change the service a little bit and how the sermon got changed. I was working on the sermon all week and was uh, had the great aspiration of covering all of chapter 8 and chapter 9 today. In many ways, it goes together as a unit. Uh, was working on that and uh, putting the final touches on that. And then yesterday afternoon realized I had more than one sermon here. <laughs> and so uh, we are going to be just looking at the first part of Revelation chapter 8 today, verses 2 through 5. And then next week we'll come back and we'll look at chapter 8, verse 6, all the way through the end of verse 21. Chapter 8 of Revelation. I'll begin in verse 1. When, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers. Of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the Holy Spirit who guides and directs us to understand it. We pray he would be present here even in this very moment. Open our eyes, open our hearts, take your word, press it deeply into our hearts and minds. Form us, shape us, gather us and perfect us as your saints, as your people. Encourage us with your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. I don't think I have ever heard anybody say that they think prayer is easy. I suppose maybe there are some that feel that way and maybe even some that are in this room, uh, but they haven't ever said it to me, probably, or, or maybe some of you as well, because they know that they would likely be pummeled when they said it to you. Prayer is hard. It's hard to make time to pray in our lives, to make it a priority and to keep it a priority. It's hard to stay focused when we pray. There are distractions that come from within and from without. It's hard to know what to pray for. It's hard to persevere in prayer, especially when it feels like and it seems like our prayers go unanswered, maybe even over months or years or even decades. And yet the Bible tells us that prayer is not only important, it is essential It is a means of grace. It is a tool for our sanctification. It is a command from the Lord. And the Lord Jesus himself prayed. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do you want to know what God's will is for you? It is to pray without ceasing and to give thanks in all 
circumstances. The Lord knows that we need help. And so he gives us encouragements. He gives us, he gives us glimpses into or he gives us pictures of the power and the purpose of our prayers. And he does that, that we might be strengthened and motivated to push on and to endure in our prayers. And we get one of those pictures, one of those glimpses from these first verses of chapter 8 in Revelation. Now, remember the context. This was a letter that was written in the first century. It came from the Lord himself. It was sent through an angel and it was given to the Apostle John who wrote it down. And we've talked in previous months about how the purpose of Revelation was to encourage God's people both then and throughout church history with hope and peace in the midst of incredible trials and difficulties and tribulations. The book of Revelation tells us the ultimate true story that there is evil in this world and in the spiritual realms, but God conquers that evil and God wins. And the book of Revelation gives us a glimpse into that cosmic battle between good and evil and reminds us that God is the winner. Revelation chapter 8 this morning gives us a picture of what prayer looks like. And it also helps us to understand the power of the prayers of God's people And it reminds us who it is that is to be praying. And it reminds us also of how our prayers are perfected. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Those four things. First of all, the picture that we get of prayer. You can see that in verses 2 through 5. Before we look at that in more detail, we need to remind ourselves of something that took place uh, a couple of uh, sermons ago from Revelation in chapter 6. There we were reading about the seven seals. And in chapter 6, when the fifth seal was opened in verse 9, we read about the souls of the martyred saints in heaven. And we were told that they were beneath the altar and they were crying out to God that God would bring about justice in all that is right in creation, that his justice would be done. Those are the prayers of God's people going up before God. And now we come in chapter eight and we see what happens to those prayers as they ascend into heaven. And what are we what are we told here in chapter eight? We get this picture of what happens from the prayers of God's people. We see in verse two that John saw seven angels standing before God in heaven and they are given seven trumpets. Now we're going to come to those trumpets next week. But it is interesting that we get that uh, we get that uh, message from John in verse two and then in verses three and four. We get this picture of what happens when God's people pray. We're told that another angel came and stood at the altar. Now, the commentators are divided. Is this simply another angel? It's very possible that that's the case. But many of the commentators think that this is John's way of telling us that this is Jesus. Here we have these seven angels, seven being the number of perfection, meaning myriads and myriads and myriads of angels at God's disposal to do God's will. And yet here we have another angel. 
This one who stands at the altar, we're told. And what is he doing? He's standing at the altar in heaven. Uh, We're we're, uh, amazed to see that there's an altar in heaven. It's like that altar that we read about in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. The the altar that was used to make the sacrifices of sins for, for God's people. It was an altar that pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate Lamb of God who would come and who would make one final and complete and perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ himself. It pointed, the Old Testament altars pointed to the redemptive sacrifice of Jesus and reconciling his people to his Father in heaven. And John, getting this vision in heaven, sees this angel, likely the Lord Jesus himself, standing at an altar in heaven, which is now a symbol of the completed and finished redemptive sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he has something in his hand. We're told that he had a golden censer. That was a bowl or some kind of a a container that would often be used in the Old Testament to hold incense. Now, that was burned in the tabernacle in the temple. Uh, And and we read here that that the angel is holding this bowl and that he is given, in fact, much incense to offer, we're told. Incense was often used as a a picture of the sacrifices and the praises and the prayers of God's people rising up as the incense was burned and the smoke would rise up with this pleasing aroma as this picture of of the sacrifices and and the prayers of God's people rising up to the throne room of heaven in a pleasing way to the Lord God Almighty. And so what do we have here? We have this picture of the angel standing at the altar and we're told not only does he have incense, but the prayers of the saints, the prayers of God's people are being collected. They are being gathered onto this altar and they are being mixed and combined with the incense. And all of this is happening before the throne of God. And then we're told that the prayers of God's people that are mixed with this pleasing aroma of incense are rising before God himself. And then verse five tells us the picture of what happens next. The angel under God's direction fills that bowl, that censer that he was holding with fire from the altar. The prayers of the saints and the incense uh, that is a pleasing aroma to God, filling the the censer with uh, these prayers and incense, and then it is thrown down on the earth, which results in thunder and rumblings and lightning and even an earthquake. And then we read in the following verses that the seven trumpets of judgment begin to blow. That's the picture that we get here of prayer. And, and I want you to understand when you see that picture of prayer, that there is a powerful purpose in the prayers of God's people. As we take in this incredible picture of what John sees of the prayers of God's people rising up into heaven, it should overwhelm us with this amazing fact of the power and the purpose of the prayers of God's people. God's people pray. And those prayers rise up into heaven and they arrive on the altar in heaven and the symbol of Christ's redemptive sacrifice. And then they are mixed with the incense and they rise before the throne of God as a pleasing aroma to God himself. 
what we have here is a picture of the Father then not only receiving the prayers of His people, but using the prayers of His people to bring about His will, to bring about His purpose, to bring about His plan and His decrees on earth. This shows us the incredible power of prayer. The trumpets that will be blown, unleashing the judgments on the ungodly and the wicked. Those trumpets are given to the angels in verse 2. But they are not unleashed to start blowing those trumpets until verse 6. And in between, what do we have? We have the prayers of God's people rising to God Himself. God answers those prayers by then unleashing the trumpets of His judgment. It's almost as if the judgments are delayed until the prayers of God's people arrive before God. God choosing to use the prayers of His people to bring about His purposes on earth. Now we have to acknowledge that there is mystery here. On the one hand, God is sovereign and He is all-powerful. And he is not limited by us in accomplishing his will and his purposes and his decrees. Prayer does not change the mind of God. His will is perfect. We wouldn't want to try to change his mind. Malachi chapter 3 tells us that the Lord himself says, I am the Lord and I do not change so that you, O Israel, are not destroyed. And yet, on the other hand, God chooses to use our prayers to accomplish His purposes. He even ordains that our prayers would be the means to accomplish His will and His decrees. Conditioning things happening on the prayers of His people. There's mystery here. Can't fully understand this, but we don't have to. We are finite. And God is infinite. But this should fill us with all kinds of wonder and awe and hope and encouragement because our prayers have a powerful purpose. There's a story about that, uh, that illustrates this in the Old Testament. It's the story of Israel going to battle with the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. It took place around the 7th century B.C. And it's actually recorded in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. If you remember your history of Old Testament Israel, they had uh, divided into two kingdoms. And the northern kingdom was called Israel. And around the year 722 B.C., Assyria had come and conquered the northern kingdom and taken many of the Israelites off into uh, being conquered and taken away to Assyria. But that didn't, stop, that didn't stop Assyria from continuing to march south into the southern kingdom of, of Judah. And we read of King Hezekiah of Judah being affronted by Sennacherib, the king and the warrior of Assyria. Things were looking very dark and very grim. They were coming towards the city of Jerusalem. The defeat of the entirety of Israel looked certain. The army was massive. And we read in Isaiah 36 and 37 that Hezekiah 
went up to the house of the Lord. And when he got there, he prayed to the Lord. And he asked for the Lord to spare the Lord's people and to defeat Sennacherib. And then we have this amazing response of God. He spoke to Hezekiah and he says, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And then we're told that the angel of the Lord came down and 185,000 of the Assyrian army were struck dead. And Sennacherib went back to Assyria with his tail between his legs. What would have happened if Hezekiah hadn't prayed? If he hadn't asked the Lord to intervene? Well, we don't know the answer to that question. But what we do know is that God answered Hezekiah's prayer and said, Because you prayed, I'm going to spare my people. I'm going to honor my name and glory in the city of Jerusalem. There is mystery here. There is power here. There's something else I want you to see from this, and that is who it is that uh, these prayers are coming from. We see that in verse 3, at the end of verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of the saints. Here's another very encouraging thing that we get from this picture of the prayers of God's people being raised up into heaven. It is the prayers of all the saints. Now, who are saints in the Bible? Saints, the word saints literally means one who has been set apart. One who has been sanctified. And it's not speaking here. The Bible doesn't use the word saints to, to talk about some kind of special category of just very holy people. When the Bible uses the word saints, it's speaking about God's people. Those who are in relationship with Him. Those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who He is speaking of when He speaks about the saints. He's speaking about you. He's speaking about me. And, and notice... Which prayers make it before the throne of heaven? It's not just the prayers of pastors or elders or deacons or biblical scholars. It's the prayers of all the saints. God may or may not decide to hear prayers of those who are not his people. He's certainly not bound or required to do so. But here we have a promise and the certain hope that as God's people, He hears our prayers. They come before Him as a pleasing aroma. He wants us to pray. He, he likes us to pray. He delights in having our prayers before Him. And I'll recognize that that's really hard for us to believe. It's hard for us to believe that God really wants us and delights in our prayers because we know that our prayers are often defective. They're insufficient. They're selfish. And sometimes they're just foolish. And that's the reason why we need to see one more thing from this picture of Revelation 8 and the prayers of God's people, and that is the perfection of the prayers of God's people. 
Remember this picture. God's people are praying. And the prayers of God's people are rising up into heaven. And they're landing on the altar in heaven. That symbol of Christ's redemptive, perfect sacrifice. And they are mixed by the angels with this incense that had been used in the Old Testament temple to symbolize the worship and the sacrifices of God's people rising to the Lord as a pleasing aroma to Him. And so what we have here is a picture of the prayers of God's people being made perfect, being sanctified, being translated into the very will of God. Yes, Our prayers are defective. They are not perfect. And sometimes they are even selfish. And that's even true for the prayers of the most holy and the best prayers. Last weekend, Tiger Woods made history in the world of golf, really in the world of sports. He was playing in a uh, professional golf tournament in Japan. And the significance of that tournament was that Tiger was doing really well during the tournament. And he was was one win away from tying the all-time record for the most wins in PGA history. 82. That record is held by a man named Sam Snead, uh, who played golf many years ago. Tiger won last weekend, and so he he tied the record with his 82nd win. But here's the really amazing thing. It took Sam Snead 53 years to do it. And Tiger has reached that record in 22 and still has many years left to play. Tiger Woods is often referred to as the GOAT of golf. Do you know that term, the GOAT? G-O-A-T. The greatest of all time. Tiger is the goat of golf. But here's the thing. Tiger has 82 wins. That's out of 359 attempts. That means that he's won 22.8% of the time that he's played in a tournament. That is phenomenal. That is uh, that, that should make us all be in awe. But what it also means is, is that he loses about 78% of the time. Even the goat of golf loses a lot. Now, you might be the goat of prayer. You might pray consistently. You might pray faithfully. You might pray for hours every day. You might remember all of the needs of our church and your own family. You might persist and endure faithfully over decades in your prayer life. But your prayers are still deficient. You have mixed motives. Pray selfishly. There are times you don't know how to pray or what you should pray for. All of us have insufficient, defective, selfish, and even foolish prayers. But here's the really good news. God in this picture is showing us that He perfects our prayers as they come to Him. Our prayers, such as they are, arrive in heaven and land on the altar of Christ's redemptive and sacrificial work. They are gathered together and mixed with the incense of heaven. And they rise to the Father on the throne. And they are an aroma pleasing to Him. 
They are prayers that are sanctified and made perfect, that are conformed and translated into the very will of God, into His sovereign and perfect will. And on top of all of that, we're also told by Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, that likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit is at work interceding, intervening, pleading for In this picture of the prayers of God's people rising to heaven, the Holy Spirit is also at work, interceding and intervening with groanings that are too deep for words, taking our prayers, foolish as they may be, selfish as they may be, and translating them into the very will of God. And that means that we can have full assurance and confidence that our prayers are heard, That our prayers are valued. That our prayers are delighted over by our Father in heaven. Now as we finish, how about some just a few implications of this? I think actually they're fairly significant implications that should motivate us, that should encourage us to be people of prayer. Don't we want to participate in this picture? Don't you want to be part of the picture of the prayers of God's people rising up into the throne room of heaven and being conformed to the will of God and being answered by God? Don't we want that? I have a pastor friend who at one time was pastoring in St. Louis, Missouri. And I heard him tell the story recently of when he got to go to a St. Louis Cardinals baseball game. Now, this was no ordinary game. It was September 8th, 1998. That whole season, uh, one of the Cardinals' star players, Mark McGuire, was chasing after a record. The most home runs ever hit in the history of baseball in one season. And my friend had actually gone to a game earlier that week and saw Mark McGuire hit his 61st home run that season, which tied him with Roger Maris for the most home runs ever. And on September 8th, 1998, the Cardinals were to play again. My friend says that he got a call early that day. And a friend of his said, I've got two tickets to the game tonight. For you and for your wife to go watch, to see if Mark McGuire hits his 62nd home run. It was unbelievable that he got those tickets and he knew that there was a problem because he was scheduled to have a session meeting with his elders that night. (laughs) So he got on the phone and he called them and he explained what was happening. They said, of sure, we are canceling the session meeting and you are going to that baseball game. So the session meeting was canceled and he and his wife went to the game. The bottom of the first inning, Mark McGuire came up to bat. He grounded out. My friend said that everybody kind of had this sigh and and sat back in their seats and began to settle in again for the next time that Mark McGuire would come up to bat. A couple innings later, he was recognizing that McGuire was still a ways off from being able to come up to bat. So he thought, this is the time that I can go and get my bag of peanuts at the concession stand. 
So he got up and he went out into the lobby, out in the, the, the bowels of the, of the stadium, and he began to stand in line, and he recognized that everybody else had the same idea, and so the lines were really long. And it was almost to the front of the line, and then all of a sudden he heard the crack of a bat hitting a baseball. And he heard the stadium erupt like he had never heard it erupt before. And he immediately left the line of the concession stand and ran back to his seat. And as he got to the top of where his seat was and he looked out, it was just in time to see Mark McGuire rounding second base after hitting the 60-second home run. The crowd stopped the game for 15 minutes as they applauded and interviewed McGuire and tracked down the the 60-second home run baseball to give back to him. Later, my friend purchased a framed picture of the moment. It was this panoramic shot of the stadium with all of the fans, with McGuire swinging his bat just as the ball was leaving. And he put this framed picture in his office at his church. And he says that when he finally got it up on the wall, his kids came in and they said, Daddy, where were you? (laughs) And he had to tell them, I was back at the concession stand. I missed it. I missed this, for him, life-changing opportunity. God gives us an incredible, significant opportunity to have our prayers rising to heaven, being sanctified according to His will, and then using our prayers to accomplish His will on earth in some mysterious way that we can't even completely understand. And we don't want to miss that opportunity. What a privilege What an honor, what a responsibility it is that we have to pray. There are so many bags of peanuts at the concession stand calling for our time and for our attention. Let's not forget one of the greatest privileges that we have been given as God's people to pray and to have our prayers heard and answered. What if God has decreed not to do certain things in our life until we pray for them? What if God is holding off on bringing revival in this land and around the world until we pray for it? What if God is delaying some blessing or help for us or for our loved ones until we pray for it? This is a reminder this morning and an encouragement that we should persevere in our prayers, that we should not give up, even when it seems like our prayers are going unanswered because we have the picture of what's actually happening. Our prayers are are rising to the throne room of heaven and they are being perfected and sanctified and they are rising to our Father in heaven as a pleasing and sweet aroma. Prayer is powerful and God uses it to bring about His purposes and His plan. There's also an encouragement here about not being afraid, not being fearful of not being a good prayer. We don't have to have any kind of fear of praying the wrong thing. 
No fear of having our prayers rejected. God delights in hearing our prayers. God is at work taking our prayers and turning them into His will. Our prayers are gathered and perfected and sent before the throne as a pleasing aroma to Him. He calls us to cry out to Him with our needs and our wants and the very darkest, deep cries of our hearts. And He'll bring those prayers to the altar in heaven and He will mix those with the heavenly incense and they will rise to Him a pleasing aroma. We need to remember that we have the promise of Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit is also at work helping us to pray. He's interceding for us when we pray. He's intervening, helping us to pray the right things. And then lastly, just as an encouragement, just in a reminder, we have Jesus' own model for us. A prayer for us in Matthew 6. We often refer to it as the Lord's Prayer. It's actually printed in our bulletins every Sunday. It's something that we can use ourselves as a model for our own prayers. I would encourage you to do that. Use the Word of God and pray the Word of God back to our Father in Heaven. And just one other resource for you if you would like to do that in a practical way. The Westminster Larger Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism all give us an explanation of the Lord's Prayer. Walking through each of the petitions and helping us to understand what they mean and giving us scriptural passages that they refer to. What if you had the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, opened up before your... Uh, before you every morning before you started the day and you had one of the catechisms opened up to the section on the Lord's Prayer and you use the Lord's Prayer and the catechisms to pray back God's word to him. What an encouraging thing that would be for us. Pray that we would be encouraged today to persevere in our prayers because indeed we have this picture of what's happening when we pray and we have the promise of Incredibly powerful purposes being accomplished through the prayers of God's people. We have the promise that he desires the prayers of all the saints to rise before him in heaven. And we have this wonderful reminder that he's at work perfecting our prayers. So let's be people of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, it really is amazing as we reflect on the reality that you have created us with the ability to pray. And on the one hand, Father, it takes so little to be able to pray at any time. And yet, Father, we know it's so hard. So we thank you for your helps of the Holy Spirit and even the pictures and the glimpses that you give us in your word to motivate us and encourage us to be people of prayer like we have here in Revelation 8. And I pray, I pray that you would help us to model what we see here in your word, trusting in the finished and completed work of our Savior, resting on the promises of your work and taking our prayers and perfecting them before your throne. And being encouraged with the promises that you use even our prayers to accomplish your will on earth. I pray, Father, that even this week, these things would motivate us to be in communion with you through our words and our hearts and prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
As the disciples and Jesus were eating together just before Jesus would go to the cross, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The reality is, is that we often struggle to believe that our prayers could be received by God because of how uh, incomplete and insufficient and defective and, uh, and sometimes even uh, just unsure our prayers are. But here is, here is more assurance for us that that is the case, that God indeed does answer and hear and value our prayers. If God has gone to this extent, if He's gone to the extent of giving us His Son, of having his son give his life, which this bread and the cup point us to, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice. If, if he's gone to this extent to reconcile us to himself, to accept us, then we can know and we can have faith that he'll receive our prayers. How would he not receive our prayers? How would he not delight in receiving our prayers if He has already reconciled us and paid for our sins, past and present and future. So if you're here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, you are in relationship with your Father through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've publicly professed that faith at Trinity or another church that believes the Word of God is true, the Gospel is by grace alone. Through Christ alone. Then as the trays come around, eat and drink and be reminded of the wonder and the majesty of this gospel of grace. And be encouraged. If God has done this for us, He will hear us because He loves us and we are indeed His children. Let's pause and thank Him for giving us this table. Our Father, we do thank You for the Lord's Supper, this means of grace. We pray that You would use it for the building up of Your people. We pray that you would encourage us with the truth that this table points us to of Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection and ascension. And we pray that as we meditate on the reality of the depth of your love for us, you would drive out any fear, any thought that you don't indeed desire to hear from us as your people and that you would receive our prayers. Father, do this for your glory and for the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.